Hi, I'm Alex Papakristidis from AP Interiors, and you are listening to Convo by Design. I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is another episode of Convo by Design featuring an incredibly important and interesting conversation about sustainable design. I found myself at the Design Hardware on 3rd Street in Los Angeles for a conversation on building sustainability, design, and wellness. I don't think it will surprise anyone to know that there's a growing and distinct link uh, to be made between sustainable design and designing for wellness. The trouble with the conversations around sustainability is that, well, it's dry, and some say dull. And yes, it can be. But What's truly exciting about the subject is what happens in the application of sustainable practices. And they, they do start with conversations like this. There is truly a revolution taking place in the design and architecture space. The focus has completely flipped on its head in a good way, where many would once talk about how a structure is used, um, or rather, how the structures to be used and lived in, and now we talk about how uh, to design and build to serve the people who use that structure. Very different. Design is experiential. The experience is what makes it work, and a lot of people are just getting hip to that right now. So Tracy Metro moderates this chat, and I will tell you, Tracy Metro can make any conversation exciting, and she does with this one. It's really fun. So her chat is with Maria McCain from the Natural Resources Design Council. Ben Stapleton of the U.S. Green Building Council, who I believe you've heard on the podcast before, and real estate pro Eric Zumwalt. The conversation connects the dots between sourcing, sustainable design, property value, and how these elements all work together to benefit those who are living within the dwellings themselves. So it's very cool. Enjoy this conversation recorded live from Design Hardware, moderated by designer and TV host, Tracy Metro. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. My name is Tracy Metro and I'm an interior designer. And this is really thrilling for us. Uh, we've been doing this since the fall and it's been growing and growing. And we've gotten to the point now where we've got a podcast going. It's so fun and exciting. Thank you so much to Josh Cooperman for that. Um, let me tell you guys a little bit about moi, and then I'll introduce our lovely guests. 
and then we'll have questions, and or I'll ask questions. It's, it's a conversation. If you have questions, feel free to pipe in. As I said, I'm Tracy Metro. I'm an interior designer, and I've been doing it for the last 20 years, both on TV and off. In the TV world, I've uh, been on own Hallmark uh, TLC HGTV and most recently I had my own show called House Doctor or have um, and uh, I shot it over in the UK Um, the sweet spot that I typically do on television is cheap and cheerful so that's always fun when you go to get a client because they're like well wait can't you renovate my whole home for five thousand (laughs) bucks no you really can't anyway so um, so that's me today we have a triple header as you can see right here And it's the beginning of the year. So many of us are trying to lose a couple pounds. Most people are cutting the carbs, right? We're not talking about carbohydrates, but we are talking about carbon emissions. So we're going to talk about new green building mandates and existing standards to achieve net zero waste, water, and energy. And here to guide us through are these three lovely folks. So at the end, we have Maria McCain, who's from the NRDC. Now, a lot of people think it's the National Resource Defense Council, it's the Natural Resources Defense Council, where she's the Senior Sustainability Coordinator. Her work encompasses the organization's seven offices and 700 plus staff members, where she analyzes extensive data on waste, water, and energy, and travel to develop and implement strategies that minimize the organization's carbon footprint. Maria also focuses on the NRDC's internal construction projects, embracing healthy materials, and sustainable design. Previously, she worked to help roll out the first zero-waste program in the city of L.A. Well done, you. She's a a true advisor. She's LEED-accredited and received a master's degree in environmental monitoring, modeling, and management from King's College of London. The bottom line is, this lady knows what she's talking about, so thank you so much for joining us and lending your expertise. Next up, we have uh, a native Angelino. You are a rarity, my friend. This is Ben Stapledon. He's the executive director of U.S. Green Building Council here in L.A. He's a recognized sustainability leader whose extensive experience and connections are, are across real estate, technology, and innovation, and all of that has served him as he's launched and managed managed the Lacretz Innovation Campus in downtown LA, as well as served as the SVP of Operations and Finance for the LA Clean Tech Incubator. At Lacey, isn't that how you say it's Lacey, right? We used to say LACI, people say Lacey now, so that's okay. So at Lacey, or LACI, (laughs) up to y'all, he led major operational growth, program development, and partnerships to triple uh, triple revenue for the nonprofit. Simultaneously, he helped lead efforts that resulted in the Lacretz Innovation Campus becoming an iconic green building for LADWP with multiple certifications as well as pilot projects targeting waste, water, and energy efficiency. My God, you guys, we are in very good company. Ben was the managing director of the LA Better Business Challenge. He holds an MBA from USC and a BA in economics from UCLA's Marshall Business School. Again, another super smarty pants. Thank you for joining us. And rounding out our trifecta is Eric Zumwalt, who's right next to me, from EGC Real Estate, which is a development company that acquires, develops, and manages over 1 million square feet of commercial and residential real estate in the western U.S. in excess of $300 million. 
Eric personally graduated from UCLA with a poli-sci degree, and then he found himself first as an assistant project manager at EGC, and now he's the senior project manager responsible for the construction of 10 to 15,000 square foot single-family homes, ranging from 10 to 20 mil and 100 and 100 rent and 100 rental units, multifunctional mixed-use projects of 60 to 70 units. Bottom line is, this is the guy that's going to hopefully help bring it down to like the regular people <laughs> instead of all the wonderful theoretical stuff. So please welcome Maria McCain, Ben Stapleton, and Eric Zumwalt. And wow, that was a lot. Okie doke. So Maria, I say it's simple. It may not be. Why does the environment matter to you? It's loaded. It's loaded, but it's so simple, right? Um, yeah, I would say that the environment matters to me because it relates to pretty much all other things. Um, so livelihood, health, um, everything relates back to the environment. And so it's really crucial that we remember that um, in every decision that we make. See, it's super simple because it's like so big, but it's just like it can. It's like there's only one answer in a way, right? Okay, Eric, what gets you out of bed in the morning for uh, regarding real estate? Um, the six a.m. phone calls from subcontractors. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, no, it's a it's an exciting industry. Every day is full of uh, new and exciting challenges. Um, I'm always looking forward to beating our schedule and. and uh, finishing a project faster, so that's what oh, gets good. me out of bed, yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, and Ben, who do you think is like one of the biggest unsung heroes in the green space right now, but that's doing great work but isn't getting a lot of notoriety? Wow. Is there somebody? Who is the greatest unsung hero in the green space? You know, uh, honestly, I would say it's that person, and everyone knows who it is at their company, who just happened to care about sustainability and took on the extra work and started doing it. And now it's part of their job uh-huh. that no one says anything, and they yep. keep doing it um, because I think we've all met that person, and, and I'm out and about meeting people all the time, and I always meet that person. I say thank you to them because they didn't have to do that, right. and ultimately everyone keeps shoving it their way. And uh, now that people care a little bit more, it just means they have more work to do. Right. Okay. Fair that's enough. That's my personal. Okay. So now, Ben, back to you. You are my very first question. So people often hear lead certification. Lead. 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 Maybe not everybody in the room here knows what lead is, so can you break down lead really quickly? Which I know it's not that that easy because it's it's kind of encompassing, but you know, thumbnail it for everybody. Um, and how hard is it for people to get there on their projects? Can you talk about the money, what the return on it is, and um, how you educate the public about trying to, to, to gain lead certification on their projects? Sure. So um, LEED stands for Leadership and Environmental Engineering and Design. It's a certification system, and it's existed for probably over 20 years now. Uh, and, you know, back in the day when I first started, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really a, a way for people to go about looking at sustainability in their buildings. Mm-hmm. And so this is really the, the system that really started that process and really kind of created the pathway for all these other certifications we have now. Uh, and LEED itself has diversified over the years, and there's actually LEED for Homes. Um, you know, there's a whole new LEED version that just came out recently. That Is that the LEED Silver? Uh, no, so there's LEED uh, version 4.1 just came out. Uh, and, you know, the, honestly, the versions don't matter that much necessarily. Uh, I'm excited about some of the new categories, like uh, there's a LEED Zero that's really focused on net zero. And there's a LEED for Cities and Communities that's really focused on looking at communities and cities holistically and seeing how they interact with each other. Um, and, you know, certifications are important. They play a role in providing guidance for 
us to, to figure out how to get to where we want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, in California, I think we're really lucky because our code here um, has really, they looked at the lead system predominantly, and, and that's how they, they structured a lot of Title 24, a lot of the Calgary code. And, uh, Can you real quickly yeah. just explain what Title 24 is? Uh, it's essentially a code update that's done every three years by the state. Um, and the interesting thing about code, as I'm sure you understand, a lot of people understand, is that uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's put out on a state level. There's obviously codes that are done on a, on a local level, but it's enforced on a local level. So a lot of the interpretations up to the local municipalities and whoever's actually doing permits or permitting in those regions. Uh, but Title 24 really looks at energy efficiency, water conservation uh, in, in our homes. Um, there are some aspects of Title 24 that are focused on waste, and I'm not a Title 24 expert, so someone here... Maybe more than me, but uh, it does look at waste to a certain extent, but not probably as deeply as it, as it could. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Maria, uh, the NRDC, you have, the NRDC, I should say, has their own set of standards, building standards, right? Mm-hmm. Explain how they differ, and um, what it, is it, are this, your, the standards that NRDC has um, similar to LEED, Standards, God, I'm not making this very clear. And this is being recorded, you guys. Um, is it achievable for Jane and Joe Public to achieve these standards? Yeah, I, I won't speak to the exact differences because I'm not familiar enough with LEAD, uh, especially with the new version, to um, answer to that. But the, our design and construction protocols, we basically took um, the most stringent aspects of like FitWell, LEAD, Living Building Challenge, and put them all into our protocols so that we could reference it that way. Um, our offices all have LEED certification and um, almost all of them have Living Building Challenge certification. So we felt that- Can you explain what, what, that, it, what that certification looks like? So I would say that... So everybody's up to speed. And again, you might be able to know the differences a little bit better, but um, for Living Building Challenge, a lot of the focus is on wellness as well. Um, So a lot of materials, um, embodied carbon, that type of thing, um, tended to be the biggest difference that we saw. And so we have adopted that into our protocols. And so our Santa Monica office actually is the first office that's kind of the guinea pig for them. Um, and we're employing that right now. And um, hopefully this summer you guys can visit and see it in action. Um, and it's ideally going to be net zero energy, too. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So now, are these standards possible for Joe Public, Joe and Jane Public, to achieve? Um. Maybe I'll take a, a shot at this first. You know, I, I think it's important to understand, you know, the, 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 at the end of the day, it's about going through the process and being thoughtful about what you're doing. Um, if you're going to pay for a certification, you should only pay for it if you're going to get the value out of that, uh, whether that's from the marketing benefits of it, whether that's from needing a, a process and a guideline to get you where you want to go mm-hmm. and having something to push you there, then you're getting the value out of it. Um, but if you're just going to pay for it to have it and not do that, then maybe it's not worth it for you. Uh, because the codes have gotten to a place, I think, in California where uh, they can guide us to a certain point. Uh, I, something I also think that we should think about, which you and I talked about a little bit on the phone, is, um, you know, we don't want to be in a place, I think, where, as a society, that people who have money and who can afford to certify their buildings and buy these specific materials can live in a, in a healthier a healthier way. That is the reality for a lot of our society now. And so I think we need to find ways, and, and code is a great way of making that happen, where uh, whatever we do, everyone can share in the benefits of that. Right. That was question nine, just so you guys know. So <laughs> check that one off. <laughs> okay, Eric. So now this, it, now I think 
is your time to shine. <laughs> what are you guys doing as a company that's actually building stuff for people to live in that they're paying for it themselves, whether it's an office building or a home? Are you guys at all focused on the mandates that they're working on? Or is it just not even a thing? For yeah, them? no, it's definitely relevant. I mean, the city of Los Angeles and California, um, a lot of these uh, regulations are part of the code. So these mm -hmm. Title 24 uh, regulations, California Green Code, are all part of the code that you have to comply with prior to getting a permit. So there's certain regulations, like in 2020, the solar power that every new residential home is going to have. Um, the Title 24 compliance and efficiency for use of electricity. Um, so it, it is relevant to a certain extent. Um, we're, we're probably, I would say, and I've thought about this, we're, we're probably at like 92% efficiency right now without being, I feel like, LEED certified or, mm -hmm. um, and we're trying to push it to like 94, 95% uh, efficient. I, I think it would be great if there would be some sort of system to where um, instead of pushing it that two extra percent, the real estate developers, they pay so much tax and school fees, um, development fees, all these crazy fees. So I think it would be great if instead of pushing it for that two percent, there was some sort of tax system that looked at the existing homes that were built in the 1920s and made some retrofit <laughs> program to instead of paying $20,000 to get from 92% efficient to 94% efficient, we paid $20,000 to retrofit a single-family home around Los Angeles to, to increase uh, the efficiency there. It's, it's all about cost, right? It is, yeah. So are people, why are people doing it or not doing it? Um, Choosing mean, to retrofit their own home. I mean, if it's safer, you know, we were talking yeah, about indoor it, air it quality. It is all about cost, and there are programs that um, LADWP is doing, changing your grass from grass to turf. There, there's all these type of programs out there to incentivize you to become um, more efficient and, and sustainable but um, a lot of it is cost yeah people people don't want to pay out of their own pockets to save the environment they feel like one person doing a small thing isn't going to change the world so why would they pay twenty thousand dollars out of their pocket mm -hmm. I think we need to look at it more holistically and and uh, implement some new rules and, and uh, procedures in in the beginning of the development phase. So Maria, you guys are about education, right? You do a lot of educating. Mm -hmm. So how do you get the message out? Who needs to hear the message? Everybody in this room is, is the, you know, you're preaching to the choir, right? So how do you get it to the people that aren't in this choir? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So um, a huge part of it is being equitable. Um, so one reason why we designed the um, construction uh, protocols is so that everyone would have access to it. And that's something that can be downloaded from our webpage. Um, we also do tours with the local schools. Um, NRDC has a huge um, partnership or huge partnerships in all the different cities that we operate in. And so we try to educate as much as we can in terms of walking the talk. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is a luxury that comes with working for a large organization because, as I was mentioning to you, people come to us. Uh, but we also have it available to everyone else. So if you're interested, you can hop online, you can get the information, you can have access to our protocols so that you don't need to necessarily go through a certification to start to employ some of those sustainability um, initiatives. Ben, how quickly do we as a society need to be there, you know, be more green? 
And do you think we'll get there in that time frame? Um, and I know that's super loaded. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, this decade, I'm sure people say this about every decade that's happened in the past, but this is really the decade of action on climate change. You know, we are all experiencing increasing impacts of that, and we see that around the world, whether it's with the fires in Australia recently or, um, you know, the, the water scarcity issues we've had here locally and other regions that have caused, you know, big political conflicts and agricultural issues. Uh, so, and, and I think as a society, you know, in this last year, we're starting to see uh, a cultural shift where even folks like Blackstone are saying that, hey, you know, this is part of our investment philosophy now when we're evaluating risk. So uh, the challenge is last year, our greenhouse gas emissions still went up. Um, so why are they going up? Because we're still producing uh, more emissions at the end of the day than we did the year before. I mean, it's not just it's not just us here. It's, you know, every other country in the world. And, uh, you know, I think. You know, we talk about needing to create radical change and, and to take action. And, you know, we've seen all the climate protests of, of youth here in, in just the last couple of years. And, you know, they're right to a certain extent. You know, like we need to do stuff now because if we don't, things will continue to change. Um, society has never made the kind of shift that we'll need in the history of mankind or humankind, I should say. Uh, and so... Uh, I think the reality is is that we need to do everything we can so that we can adapt in a way that's more manageable for us as a mm-hmm. society. Um, you know, we're we're going to have to see if we can limit, um, you know, the temperature rise uh, here by 1.5 degrees, and we only have 10 years or so to really to fight that battle. Uh, and on the path we're on right now, we're we're not going to win that. So, um, you know, there's no so construction, yeah. which we're all involved in this is inherently a dirty business, right? It's it's tearing things down to build things, where, where, whether it's a tree or you're knocking down a building to, to build it up. How do you do that thoughtfully and not wear on the environment? Um, for us, we it's about being intentional at the beginning. Um, so making sure that everyone who's coming on board, the designers, engineers, all of that, are understanding of the goals of that project. Um, and then we develop um, how to reach those goals and start planning right from the start. Um, so doing like a construction waste management plan, understanding the flow that we want in the design because um, we want to be zero waste. So we need to make sure we have the appropriate room for right sizing the bins, um, promoting uh, more active activity. So, um, you know, having the staircase be something that is enjoyable, a place of meeting. Um, so that less people are, are going to be inclined to take the elevator. And so outlining what that might look like for that project right from the beginning and planning for, um, like I mentioned, the waste aspect, but like what can be reused, salvaged, um, and making sure everyone's on board and communicating throughout. So bringing it down to everyday people, what are you guys doing to manage waste? Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of the, the materials that we're using now are, are mandated to be more sustainable, but um, it's it's difficult to manage waste and, and to get to that net zero. I mean, all of the equipment that we use in the construction world are uh, heavy machinery that are... Um, fuel. A lot of fuel, yeah. So it, it's difficult. It's a new challenge that we're facing. It's a new... Um, it's not a new issue, but it's definitely become a lot more relevant, like Ben said uh, early on, that this is the decade for change, and we've got to figure out what we can do to, to limit the use of that heavy machinery. I mean, it's, it's mandated to build a building of, you know, seven, eight stories, ten stories. You need a, it's a machine like that's running 24-7 that's yeah, emitting um, fuel into the air. So um, we're, we're trying our best that we can 
to provide housing, but at the same time, um, be as efficient as possible. Could I add a, a few things about, about yeah, waste? Just because right I think it's an important topic for this group. You know, about 40% of our municipal waste stream is construction waste. So uh, this is a huge part of the waste problem here. And the problem honestly starts upstream in a lot of instances. So uh, the architecture community, the design community, when you're specifying what's going to happen on site, part of that specifying products, but also specifying in your demolition. How is that supposed to be handled? Uh, making sure that you specify that you need to have a certain diversion rate of, of what's happening on site before it's done. Uh, and, you know, the reality is it's going to cost more to, to avert your waste. But typically, and you probably know better than I do, but the, the cost for demolition might be 1% to 3% of a project, let's say. Uh, it might cost you 30%, 30% more of that 1% to 3% mm -hmm. to, to, to have the diversion rate where you want it. And, but people always go with the lowest bidder, or they go with something that's going to just just hit it on the surface, as opposed to saying, "Hey, you know, for us to add half a percent in cost, we can divert you know ninety percent of our waste, or have this be a zero waste project." So the problem it honestly has to start upstream because by the time someone's bidding on a project to build it, they're going to bid on whatever the specifications are. So they need to have it from the beginning that it needs to be this kind of pro this kind of project. What is diverting waste? The question is, what is diverting waste? Um, so there's certain facilities you'll go in and, and they're, they're set up to basically weigh waste as it, as it comes in and waste as it goes out. On site, you can have different kinds of waste that are sent to different recycling facilities. Um, you can have, most people go with a waste hauler that is certified to have a certain diversion rate on site. So when the waste arrives at the site, they're going to separate the different components out, the concrete, the steel, the drywall, and those get sent to different places that are going to recycle them a certain way. A lot of facilities will grind up what's left over and use it as daily cover to cover the waste on site, and they can count that as diversion, even though it's not really diversion. Uh, and then it gets weighed on, on its way out. Uh, yeah. But there's not a lot of transparency there right now. Right. So I was just going to say, yeah, so please. basically taking it, removing it from the landfill stream. Yeah. Um, and so finding those alternative waste streams that you were mentioning. We build in a community called uh, Hidden Hills. It's mm -hmm. in Calabasas. And they do a great job of, um, they demand, a, they call it a C&D deposit, construction mm -hmm. and demolition deposit, which I think uh, Los Angeles should yeah. um, look to them a little bit more. We, we just paid, uh, we're, dem we're demolishing a single family home to build up a brand new one. The home's 100 years old. No one's mm -hmm. going to live in it at this point. Um, not for the price that the homes are selling for in that neighborhood. And we were mandated to pay a $30,000 deposit. Um, in order to get that deposit back, we have to prove to them that we recycled the material that we demolished off of the project. So all of the wood that needs to be separated, all of the asbestos stucco needs to be taken to a certain treatment center. We need all those reports and receipts in order to get that deposit back. And I think if we did that more globally um, and not just in a small 650 um, home neighborhood, it would be, it would be very impactful. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about waste, but when we were on the phone, we were talking about water. One of the biggest expenses here in California is moving our water around. And not just water, good quality water. And then the conversation then went to good quality air. So while we're talking about construction materials, what's being done sustainably to move our water around, getting us good water, and paying attention to the quality, the air quality indoors versus just outdoors, because everybody thinks about, oh, air quality, air, air quality, it's cars, 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 right? Well, I don't know, has anybody had their air checked in their home? Mm -hmm. Might not be as, as clean as we think. So what's being done? Um, yeah, you want me to, I, I can start and then. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, we did actually did a study late last year on indoor air quality, and you know, indoor air quality can be three to five, five times worse than outdoor air quality. 
That's uh, bananas to me. And the reality is, and if you start to think about it, you can understand why, uh, you know, most um, HVAC or, or air handling systems aren't maintained as well as they need to be. Filters aren't changed as often as they need to be. Um, we don't often know what is in a lot of the materials that we use in, in our homes or in our furniture. Uh, a lot of those are off-gassing. Um, you've got things like mold and dust that get caught in, in fabric and curtains and in rugs. And so, um, you know, I, th- I think we do need to start having indoor air quality in a bigger way in homes because, you know, I don't think anyone here probably knows what their indoor air quality is in their home. And if, if they do, good, good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, honestly, is the, the costs have dropped into range now where people can afford to buy a good indoor air quality sensor. Um, so it's something that we need to be more aware of, and I think it's even a bigger mark for equity in some ways than outdoor air quality is, because if you think of people who have less money, probably live in, in less well-maintained properties that are built using cheaper cheaper materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Using, yeah. No, that's, that's a perfect segue. Um, so NRDC, we focus mainly on the materials aspects. We do do annual air quality testing as well, and we require that after the completion of any construction project. Um, for the materials aspect, we tend to use um, living building challenge um, rec- criteria. So that is like declare a label that's understanding and having full transparency to the ingredients that are actually coming into the office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that could be something like, for instance, uh, plastic laminate that is very toxic. Um, it's PVC, which is not great for the environment, but also there's a formaldehyde aspect too. Um, so really understanding, as you were saying, the off-gassing, where is that coming from and preventing that from um, being in your um, office or home. Mm-hmm. So in 2002, the city of, Los Ange- city of Los Angeles became the first big city in the U.S. to require virtually any new municipal building to be LEED certified, right? And in 2009, it, um, it increased that requirement to the LEED silver, as we talked about a little while ago. How are we doing, for one, um, but for two, I think this is like, very much ties into Jane and Joe Public. Can we, or and I don't even know if any of you can answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Can we force the building industry to, outside of Title 24, I guess, to be more, make more green? There has to be, I think, some sort of incentive program. We we were actually the uh, first. And thank you for company. answering before I even finish the question. Yeah, <laughs> so I saw what you meant. Yes. Uh, we were the first company to build a for sale lead silver certified project in Santa Monica um, back in 2010, I believe it was. Um, so right before the recession hit, and that those extra costs did hurt, but. Um, mm-hmm. No, uh, the incentive was that Santa Monica had a program where they would expedite your plans to like double the amount of speed of uh, permitting your plans if you built if you built a lead certified project uh, to the silver standard. So, carrot, um, carrot, carrot. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Hey, if it gets it, if it gets it done, right? Human nature works. Is it? I think everyone needs to be incentivized. And if Uh you're gonna, if if you want me to help you, you help me, type of thing. And Mm -hmm. um, I think if that was. you know, in the whole Los Angeles region or globally, if you're building a more sustainable project, then you should be put to the front of the line and, and, mm-hmm. and have some additional incentives, yeah. So for the general public that's building something, outside of Energy Star and solar panels and water catchment, what are the three things that you think would be great for folks here that might be designers and developers and, and architects? Um, to put into their project? Um, the first, I don't know if I can name three right off the bat. That's okay, one. Uh, yeah, Give the us first one. thing that comes to mind is embodied carbon. 
Um, and so there's this great tool that just came out, which is called EC3, and I highly recommend it. It's free, um, and you can see what type of materials in the body carbon um, associated with those materials, and really from the ground level, figure out uh, what the best option is um, for those emissions. Uh-huh. Yeah, I would probably add to that a little bit, because I was actually mentioning that, that tool as well. Uh, but uh, there's other databases out there that really look at the environmental product declarations, or EPDs, of the materials you're using. Um, and one of the databases we use is called uh, Sustainable Minds. And almost almost every product now, uh, or at least every product category, has something that has those declarations in there. Um, they're getting better in terms of how they're put together. And it basically, it talks about the manufacturing process and really kind of looks at what's the environmental footprint of this product. So looking at that and looking at, at you know, if you look at locally sourced versus non-locally sourced, that's a huge part of the embodied carbon of what goes into something that, that goes in your project. So even just looking at locally sourced gets you a lot of the way there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then taking the time to really look at these environmental product declarations and really get into, okay, how does this product compare to this one? And there's databases now that can do that to show you who's above a certain threshold on, on certain category or not. Mm-hmm. And then you can make those decisions in a, in a more informed way. And I think for this community, that's, that's probably a good way to, to go about it. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to give another plug. Um, so we're using red to green on our Santa Monica, and we are just use it for our D.C. construction project. Um, it's similar to what you described, so it's a database of uh, looking at the embodied carbon and those types of documents, uh, but also the health. Um, so it's, it does like, it's like basically just a point system, like a score, and you're able to um, filter out that way. Uh, what about for people? Can they buy carbon offsets? And what does that mean? Can 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 people do it? Has first of all, has anybody in the room on their project bought carbon offset credits? Have you? No, no, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, have you? <laughs> have you? I did. Oh, well, come on up here. Seriously, come on. I'm like not getting you. It's been a long time. Okay, come on up because I want to bring you into this conversation. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Do you have the receipt? I'm exactly. I'm trained. <laughs> Everybody, David Stone from uh, Tim Barber Limited. Brilliant, from Tim Barber Limited. Have a seat. Okay, perfect. You know what? This is very casual. It's like, come on up, everyone. Okay, so, and I have you here for, seriously for a reason. Okay. So, can gen- can Joe Public buy carbon <laughs> offset credits? What do they cost? Why are they so cost prohibitive? Except for this guy. Um, and then, and then we'll t- after that, then we'll talk about water. Yeah, I will first say that it's it's not the solution. I mean, first is reduction. Um, so, but it can be a really significant mechanism in our fighting of climate change as we're progressing to those goals that we have. Um, if you are buying carbon offsets, and you can, you can do it for your business. You can do it for your personal offsets. Um, it's essential that they meet certain criteria um, so like additionality so ensuring that that project uh, would have not happened without your involvement so let's say you're like um, paying a landowner to not cut down a forest on his or her land um, were they planning on cutting it down to begin with that type of thing mm-hmm. um, co-benefits so um, like having biodiversity in that forest that you're saving uh, making sure it's verified. So we go through uh, Green eClimate, which is a great resource just to have that third-party verification to make sure it's permanent and it's enforceable. Um, but, yeah, you definitely can, and I think it's a great thing. It's a great mechanism, especially for embodied carbon, um, to offset that. Ben, do, yeah, add in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the importance of offsets is it creates a market for people to opt in. Uh, that does reduce ultimately what's out there in the world, but having that verification is incredibly important. 
um, you know, it may not matter if you're building a project here in Southern California and you're buying, you know, buying a carbon offset for something that's happening in, in China. I think we need to look at how do we find carbon offsets that look more at local projects and look at local impacts. Um, and I think that that market will continue to evolve, but as it evolves and gets more verified, cost will go up, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there has to be a, a balance, and that's the reality. At the end of the Eric, do you guys buy? No, and actually I was going to uh, backpedal a little bit. I actually haven't even heard of carbon offsets, so I'm not sure what they are. And how and our work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> we got one over to this side. Well done, everyone. Okay, so... What was the project? Why did you do it? Was it more expensive? What was the cost? Was it more expensive than you thought? Do tell all of us. <laughs> so I was. Uh, we were doing a, a twenty-five thousand square foot house in Vero Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was prior to working for Tim Morgan Limited, but uh, it was the the client was very much so interested in making sure that the footprint of this extremely large, extremely ridiculous home that was built on the beach was going to not affect the uh, environment in an adverse manner. And so the only way that we could really do that was to sort of carbon offset a little bit of the cost. We did as much as we could with environmental materials. Locally sourcing for Florida is almost impossible because 500 miles is the ocean. So we ended up... uh, paying into a fund that actually purchased and uh, installed solar panels throughout the uh-huh. state of Arizona was what the offset was. Well, wow, okay, so. so talk about far away. Could did I, it, could did I ask how much that offset was know, for a $25,000 square foot home? I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but oh, it was okay. quite large. Did it assuage the person's guilt? Uh, it made them feel better at the end of the day. Uh, so it was priceless. Yes. But it was, it's a, you know, Florida, 25,000 square feet. It was about a $16 million project. Wow. Uh, and we offset a good at least half of that. So, That's Was great. it hard to source it, figure it out? Because most people, this guy doesn't even know about it until now. You know what I mean? So I would say it's not something that is in everybody's vernacular. Yeah, it, it's not easily found, but we uh, talked to our local USGBC, found a couple of websites, and found a spot that we could actually do it through. Cool. Was it hard to do, or once you once figured we, it out? Once we figured out where it was, it was as easy as writing a check, really, ultimately. Okay. Figure out what the embody, uh, embodiment was inside the, the project, what we were actually causing, and then paying the, the offset. So it was a lot of math, but otherwise it was... But you're probably really it. good at that, so you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> good enough to figure that out. <laughs> Thank you, awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming up. So um, I want to circle back really quickly... Well done. <laughs> um, they have the money to do it, right? And this was something that we talked about right in the beginning about are, are people going to be surrounded by good green products because they've got the money to do it? What's happening in the inner cities for people that maybe don't have the access to all of the information, even though it is online, but it's having the desire, the interest, the time, the inclination to go and source that information? Um, is, I guess is, are the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, both financially but also environmentally speaking, and imp- being impacted by it? Because it sounds like y'all had a whole lot of money to swage the guilt and make the project green. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it really depends on, on where you're looking, you know, and where you're sort of drawing the line, right? That, you know, for a lot of the publicly financed affordable housing projects, uh, a lot of that financing actually has pretty significant restrictions around energy efficiency, you know, things that they have to do on site. 
Um, but we're talking about you know the big projects that are funded in, in a very specific way. We're not talking about you know the predominant you know I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I think it's like in the sixty percent range of the LA market. That's all you know smaller unit complexes that are much older. Um, so the reality is we have a, a lot of work to do. Um, I think we do need to have incentive programs and things that continue to subsidize the cost for that lower end of the market. Um, you know something I, I think that we should think about is over the last few months of last year during the wildfires, you know, all of a sudden this whole issue of having scheduled blackouts is a big deal for people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you could see a world where people maybe are buying solar now or buying energy storage who have money um, so that when that happens again, they have power, but people don't have money then aren't able to opt into that system so that they have power. And so as we move into this future where we're going to have to adapt to climate change, we do need to make sure that it's equitable and everyone can participate. And that is going to mean more incentive programs. That is going to mean that, like the city of Santa Monica is looking at this right now for the REACH code, if you're building a project and you need to have a carbon offset, your offset is actually retrofitting other projects in Santa Monica. And so we're going to have to create that balance. That's pretty now. cool. That's pretty cool. Oh, that's a great answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it touches back on my point earlier that um, I think it is important to obviously get to that 100% efficiency, uh, efficiency but... Uh, the city of Los Angeles mandates, you know, retrofits for buildings so that they can withstand earthquakes nowadays. Mm-hmm. And, and owners of those buildings are spending hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Some of these buildings are spending millions of dollars, but they still have those glass slot windows that don't actually fully close. So their AC systems are running the full time. So I think it's we've got to take a little bit uh, uh, holistic look at it from a government level and see. Uh, what kind of mandates the government can put down and, and, and how we can help support pay for it. Because owners, at the end of the day, owners are, are feeling the pain of these uh, mandated programs like this earthquake retrofit. Um, but if and it we can, can only trickle down so far with the THP from the uh, housing department. So there's only, somebody has to absorb the cost and it's not getting all the way down to renters. So... Yeah, and there there are programs that you can share the cost with renters, and you can um, you can apply for some additional money. Um, but but it's not a lot. It doesn't cover the cost of the no, uh, not at all. And, and, it's, and, and all. Uh, yeah, we, I think we just need to do a better job of mandating some of these new laws. Anybody have any questions? Yes. Um, it's not so much a question, but I, I really think that it it requires a systematic shift. And that, you know, like Ben's talking about equity in the beginning, uh, and, you know, I appreciate Eric talking about, you know, uh, having the uh, incentives, but I think it needs us to demand that sort of incentive because it's not, there's a lot of uh, incentives at the lower income level, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, the haves can do anything they want. You know, they can, the buildings like this gentleman talked about, 25,000 square foot homes, but you know, it's it's the middle range. Like in the middle, you're saying the middle, the middle is getting squeezed you know, the so most. The, the LA middle range is like a million dollars to three million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the those are the uh, housing market that is being remodeled or you know we we have. And I try to talk to uh, flippers and developers to when they are rehabbing to make it green, to use the sustainable materials, but they don't because, number one, they don't know about it, and number two, they think it's more expensive. And there is a lot of, uh, there are not a lot, there is like FHA has a, a energy efficiency mortgage mm-hmm. that you can people can use to either buy an existing home and then 
they will give you money to, to upgrade to energy efficient. And or you can, you can actually use it to uh, refinance and to do some energy efficiency upgrade. But the rates are not that competitive. It doesn't make sense. So all mm -hmm. that all the things has to be to available and attractive enough that people would do it. I agree. I, I so there was a lot that you was just yes, said, but I think right, right. I think what happens is the middle ground people, the one to three million dollar home renovations, mm -hmm. that aren't these massive you know mansions. It all comes down to dollars and cents, and that's what during our I think all of our conversations, it's what can Joe and Jane Public do when they don't have tens and gobs of millions of bajillions of dollars? Make the right decision. How do they make the right decision? That's a green decision. That's still within their budget. Like I guess, how do you get cost down? Is that the, at the end of the day? How do you get the right decision cost down? Can I comment on that just for a moment? Yeah. Because I, I think. You know, the perception always on these projects is that green does cost more, and sometimes it does. Um, and you have to look at, like, what's, what's the return for that ultimately? I was an econ major in undergrad. Like, the numbers have to make sense. Uh, but I think oftentimes people start looking at the sustainability of the project far too late. It needs to be a principle from the beginning. And when you look at it from the beginning and you have thing like, things like design charrettes and you have things where you look at how are you holistically approaching the project, as he said, you can actually have it usually come out at, at no additional cost. It's the problem is people start looking at, okay, now how do we get this project to be green? They've already done the initial design. They're already halfway through picking their materials. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, oh, now this adds additional cost or it's going to take additional time. And time costs money for us to do this work. And so then it starts to cost more. And so the most important thing I think Joe and Jane Public can do is to start at the very beginning about being thoughtful about how they're engaging in the process and making sure it's a principle of what they're trying to do. And let me just repeat just so, because she's off mic, and so since we're doing this as a podcast, um, how much, the question is, how much do the manufacturers, uh, it's almost like the manufacturers hold all the cards about how green our projects can be, and how, so how much are they being held accountable? Is that a, a fair, mind, mindful, at the end of the day, it all comes down to dollars and cents, right? Everyone's got to make a buck. So how does making a buck still make sense so environmentally? There are some mandates now. In the state of California, there was a Buy Clean California Act that was passed so that uh, any public funds that are spent on certain materials, so uh, steel, glass, uh, certain kinds of insulation, roofing materials, those have to have these environmental product declarations, so they have to have transparency. Uh, on Monday, I think I can say this, but the, the mayor is going to announce that they're adopting that here for the city of L.A. Um, we need to have that kind of increased pressure on manufacturers, but even by the act of using the Mindful Materials database like she mentioned and using that to pick your products is going to require the manufacturers that don't have their products mm -hmm. have the information or aren't up to spec, they're going to start being specified less, and so that puts pressure on them. Uh, as a little plug, we're actually going to have training at USGBCLA in April and May on how to use some of these database tools and how to use the EC3 tool. So if you want to figure out how you can do that more in your practice, I'd just say reach out to us. And I don't know if you had a comment. Yeah, I can just say on a smaller scale, um, so with our construction projects, I will reach out to each manufacturer of literally every single material that's used. Um, and if they don't meet our guidelines, they know why they didn't meet our guidelines. They know that like they had X ingredient or it was you know sourced too far or there was enough transparency. Um, and so we try to do our part to to um, show that there is a demand for it. Um, and I would encourage you to it's not about reinventing the wheel if you um, don't have the time to vet 
you know, numerous products, reach out to someone like NRDC or somebody else who did a similar project, um, and we would be more than happy to um, share our resources. That is so invaluable because not everybody goes in, like you said, has the time or even the understanding of what makes something perfect and green and a great choice. Mm-hmm. So that's really valuable for people. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, so our company is a green-focused technology solutions provider. I'm just wondering what your experience is in using tech to save power uh, in regards to the automation. Are you guys leaning on tech companies at all or automation companies, power management software? What are you guys seeing out there? What are you, what are you using now? What are you, where are you seeing that going? What's the name of your green, ca- green tech company? Modern okay. Life Technology. So Modern Life Technical Solutions um, is a tech, I'm just repeating, uh, is a, a green tech company. And the question was, what are, are they working with or companies like yourself? Um, so in NRDC's offices, we pretty much all, or all of them have the dimming features for lights. We have like Smart Plug, uh, we have like Kill Switch, for example. Um, but we're actually recommissioning our environmental management information system right now, so metering um, in all of our offices so that we can engage with staff more and the public more. So that will be now available real time online uh, to everyone and not just me to like crunch all the numbers. Um, so I think that that's a huge part of how we see going forward is having more engagement uh, with the people who are making these choices every day to, um, you know, use less water or um, why we have um, low flow fixtures, that type of thing, just to see the results of it. Um, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity in the small to mid-sized building market in this area. The challenge is no one's really figured out how to crack the nut from a technology perspective to really push user adoption. You look at most of the Class A office buildings out there, the return for them to do automation is there. They've got people who are paid to spend time figuring out how to find money, and they found that money, and they've, they've engaged in those automation systems, and there's a variety of them out there uh, that interact with the current uh, building systems, the Johnson Controls, and those things of the world to automate them. Uh, but the reality is, I think, in the small to mid-sized market, there, there is, are not great tools yet. I think there's stuff that's out there that does work. But it comes down to, to habits, it comes down to passion, it comes down to people actually adopting the products. And I think a lot of times we see too is that someone might do an energy efficiency project and put a system in place, they get a new job, they move on, someone else comes there, they don't know how to use the system and it, and it doesn't matter, that investment isn't going to have a return anymore. So it needs to be, there needs to be training and there needs to be something that's easy for people to really interact with. And I think from a society level as we move more into this smart home uh, situation that I think is happening more and more all the time, those tools will become easier, uh, but in that small to mid-sized market is an open playing field. And right now, we're seeing a lot of the bigger financial players are trying to find ways where they can push financing into that market because whether it's retrofits or other things, it's going to start pushing a lot, a lot more of that market to move. Another question or two? Yeah. So actually, I was going to point out I uh, had a conversation with our AB consultant that we work in with at our office, who was actually in Las Vegas last week at a uh, AB show. And they were basically meeting with a company that specifically works on the connecting the photovoltaic and uh, alternative energy systems. I know the solution. We're already using it. Yeah. And that's 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 the easiest way to go. If you can put the power of an iPad and be able to do live load shedding and a battery backup that can power your whole home off of solar, then you've just made it easy and something that they can understand instead of this big mass 
hard, scary piece of plastic. But you couldn't exactly. do that just a short period of time ago, yeah. and you're still talking about early adopters now. So that that has that kind of thing has to get to the to the mainstream. Yeah. You have a question. Okay, so my question is a little bit personal, but um, I just had a... It's okay, you're amongst friends. <laughs> um, expert come out to my house to test the air quality, and um, he found an electromagnetic field coming from my DWP meter that's, like, in my house, which is affecting my sleep and all this stuff, and I just wonder if you guys know anything about that and how that's... Because he said it was basically completely unregulated since DWP has switched over from... Um, people coming in manually checking the meters to these um, automatic signal meters. So you have an electro, if I hear, if I got that, an electromagnetic field is coming off of your meter, which is interrupting your indoor air quality and affecting your sleep. And the question is, what the hell? (laughs) Sorry. I would have been slightly more incredulous if it wasn't so many people. Um, seriously, I've never even heard of this. This sounds horrifying. Uh, this is an interesting question. I, don't know. Yeah, I, I can comment on it a little bit. Uh, you know, so you know, first of all, everybody I'm sure knows that everything has an environmental, ma- you know, it has a magnetic field of some kind, electromagnetic field of some kind. Uh, you know, I think this is a big challenge in a lot of these instances, and I think you should raise this question. In fact, I, I talk to a lot of people at DWP all the time. I'm happy to, to bring this up. Uh, and they've been actually pretty far behind on a lot of the automation for their meters here in this region compared to other utilities. Uh, but I think this is why we need to, to use our collective voice. I mean, we were talking about this on the phone. There's no indoor air quality standard. There literally is not one. The burden of proof is on us as consumers for materials in our homes. It's not on the manufacturers. They don't have to prove what's necessarily in their product. So, you know, if there's situations like these and there's, whether it's a magnetic field or something else, I think that's why we need to have data and, you know, you need to raise this concern. And I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards to learn more. Yeah. Good. Oh, wow. This is so excellent. Thank you to Design Hardware so much for hosting lunch, for hosting the chat. And uh, this, for everybody, anybody who's new here, this is a wonderful showroom, great resources for flooring, fixtures, uh, decorative hardware, fabric, outdoor furniture um, from Tadeli, wall panels, decorative, I'm sorry, decking, siding, they have like everything you could ever need. And they're really lovely people to boot. Okay, so now before before you guys leave, say hello to, stop by and say hi to Michelle Solomon. She's a leading expert. And Avi Balsam, he's the man who signs the checks. Say hey to him. See you next time. That's a wrap on this episode of Convo by Design, recorded live from Design Hardware, featuring Eric Zumwalt, Ben Stapleton, Maria McCain, and of course, Tracy Metro. Thank you, Design Hardware, for hosting and uh, putting on such a great event. Thank you, Walker Zanger, as always, for your generous support. And of course, thank you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, um, please do, and you can find it everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Until next week, keep creating. 